0: We have your Bible, go to grab it. and turn with me to Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12. We are continuing on in a series that we started last fall through the book of Romans that we kind of paused over the summer as we looked at the dangers facing the church through Revelation chapter 2 and 3, but we're in this series in Romans to really get an idea of who God is. And as we live our lives, we need to know the truth of God and allow that truth to ground us so that we might live daily for Jesus Christ. So probably about two or three months ago now, uh, my family, uh, we had church down here over the summer. And then uh, it was a pretty hot day. So like some Sundays uh, when it's hot and I'm tired, we went home and I took a nap. And then about three o'clock, we got up and and hopped in my vehicle and drove down to York where we were going to go to a King and Country, for King and Country concert. Well, if you didn't know, they they were actually playing at the York County Fair. And if you go to the fair with kids, what do kids simply want to do? They want to ride the rides. They want to eat all the food. Well, we're trying to save a little bit of money. So I, I already knew in my head, we're going to go to the fair and we're going to look but not touch. We're gonna look, watch everybody else have fun, but we're not gonna get to have any sort of fun until the concert. So my mind, uh, we're driving, it's hot, it's humid. I'm not really looking forward to walking around these rides and having to say no constantly. So we're driving, we get up to the fairgrounds, probably about a mile out, and all of a sudden on the the left-hand side, Somebody has a sign. Fair parking, $6. We should I talk and kind of looking around like, it's a little sketchy of an area. That's cheap, it's a little sketchy. Let's keep driving. And we get up to the fairgrounds and we realize that we're actually going the wrong direction to get into the fairgrounds. So we have two choices. We either turn around and wait in like a 45 minute line to get into the fairgrounds, or we see a sign on the right that says, Parking, I hate waiting in line. So we took that sign and we drove up and they said it's going to be $20 to park. I don't know about you, but that started to kind of eat at me, but we were committed so I like forked over the money and we're getting out of the car, starting to walk over the fairgrounds, and it's just, I'm just starting to see, like I'm just like frustrated and annoyed, knowing that we got ripped off. But just to try to soothe me in any sort of way, I decided to look up online to find out how much the parking lot at the fairgrounds was charging, thinking that if they charged more, I would feel better. Well, that was a terrible decision, because as I found online, they were charging $10 for parking. And so you can just imagine at this moment, I was grumbling, and my family was not walking with me. They wanted to, to walk a little bit ahead of me, so they didn't hear my just utter frustration, feeling like we got taken advantage of. So we're walking down the sidewalk, and they're like, hey, hey, since you didn't park here, you got to go through that gate over there. Now we gotta walk further. Like, this is just not a great start to the night. So, we break out our tickets and walk through the the little admission area, and we get about 50 steps into the park, and these two people make a beeline for us. I'm starting to get a little, little nervous. Like, I don't know these people. Why are they heading right for us? And in that moment, they say, We have to go. Here are $40 worth of tickets to all the rides. And they hand it to me and they walk away. Now, in that moment, everything changed. You see, all of my complaints, all of my begrudging, oh, I'm going to have to tell my kids no a million times, all of the frustration. Everything in that moment, I was convicted to the core of what I was finding my hope and trust in. And that one act of kindness transformed me entirely. Like all of a sudden, all of the pressure and the weight and the stress just released from my body. All of my grumpiness was was changed to like, wow, look at how the Lord provide. What act had the ability to transform everything of that night? How much more should the one act of Jesus Christ dying to give his life for you and I and rising from the dead so that we might have eternal life transform everything that we see? Everything everything. Everything. How much more should the gospel of Jesus Christ actually bring transformation to our lives. Well, that's what we're going to see this morning as we look at Romans chapter 12 verses 1 to 2. Paul's point this morning is just going to be very plain, very simple, and yet don't miss the profundity of the passage, how profound this truth actually is, and the reality of what we're going to see is that God's salvation must lead to God's sanctification. The reality that when we come to trust in Jesus, it must so trickle deep into the recesses of who we are that it actually leads us (coughs) to experience God's sanctification work where he changes every aspect of our being to look more like And so with that, let's go ahead and read our passage. As we, would you stand with me, as I read this passage, we stand in honor of God and the word that he is now speaking to us. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, perfect. This is the word of Lord. Y'all the Lord. all got to people set? Praise be to God. You may it. So we are looking at the book or the letter to the church at Rome because as we've noted time and time again, The more we know about God, the more we actually can know about ourselves. The the 16th century French reformer, John Calvin, opens his Institutes of the Christian Religion where he just says, you want to know about yourself? Look to God, know God. That's incredibly helpful because we live in a time and we live in a world and we live in a culture in which there are a ton of questions. There's much confusion out there, and we want to be able to honor the Lord with our lives. As we just saw the last couple months, there are many dangers causing us or enticing us to fall away from the Lord, and we want to be able to figure out how do we withstand and continue to, to walk with Jesus Christ every day. And it starts by just looking at who God is by being reminded of the character and attributes of who God is. And so, like I said, we've been walking through the Book of Romans for almost a year. If you've missed any of the sermons, they're all online or, or through podcasts. I want to encourage you to follow up on them. And if you haven't received, we actually on the back table have scripture journals, through the book of Romans, just uh, the book of Romans by itself with area around to just take notes and study, and we want to encourage you to take one so that you can study this book and, and understand the truth of it. But we've got to remember kind of a little bit of the backdrop to be able to understand this book. So if you remember, this letter is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who's one of the 13 apostles uh, of Jesus Christ. And he comes to faith in Jesus Christ from a background of hating Christ, of killing Christians. And we read in Acts 9, as he's on his way to Damascus, Uh, with papers in hand to arrest Christians and have them jailed for believing in Jesus. He is knocked off a horse, and a bright light shines and blinds him. And in that moment, Jesus just cries out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Church, if nothing else, that should be an encouragement, that when the world persecutes you for following Jesus, You're not alone. Jesus identifies with you in that person. And in that moment, Paul comes to faith. Saul comes to faith in Jesus Christ his name is later changed to Paul and he goes on this missionary journey all throughout the eastern part of the Roman Empire, which is present day Turkey and Greece and Macedonia, starting churches. And now he believes, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, that his work in that part of the world is done and that God is calling him to go all the way to the western side of the empire to Spain to start churches. And so he's writing this letter to the church at rome to to ensure that they have a commonality or a common foundation in the gospel and out of that to ask them to partner with him to start churches in spain and so paul for 11 chapters has simply been unpacking this glorious gospel that that these religious jews and these anti-religious gentiles can now both be brought in to the people of God and can worship God through Jesus Christ. And now this morning, Paul's going to say that that truth singularly, that truth alone, should transform our lives. And so to see this, we have to focus first on that foundational truth, and then we're going to look at two ways that that truth should transform our lives. So let's go ahead and dive in. The first foundational truth of all that we're going to see is just simply God's salvation. Our lives and any transformation we hope to have must start, not with you, not with you getting better, not with your ability, but has to start first with what God has already accomplished in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul shows us here. He reminds us of the gospel foundation. We've, We've got to remember that we're diving into Romans 12, and we started Romans 1 in September of 2021. But for the church at Rome, they would have sat and listened to the entire letter and would have remembered all that had already, uh, Paul had already written through the first 11 chapters by the time he gets to chapter 12. And on the heels of that, notice what he says in verse 1. He says, I appeal to you. You see, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, it is not a ticket. For us to ride the rest of our lives off into the sunset, just say, you yeah, I just get to wait until glory." He's not asking us to be passive in our lives, but rather we're called to actively engage following Jesus Christ. He's encouraging us to actively apply the truth of the gospel to our lives so he says I appeal to you and then he says therefore so anytime you see this word therefore you have to realize that it's pointing back to what happened before in a sense this passage is just like a hinge on a door so go to any of the doors here and you'll see the hinge that it is the hinge that allows the door to swing open so that you can enter the room and it is this verse and this point that hinges the entire letter from all that Jesus has done to how it should apply to our life now. And so we're seeing the book kind of pivot that the next five chapters, Paul will say, because of what Jesus has done, this is how our life should be different. What's that pivot point? Notice who says next. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, it's mercy. Mercy is this idea where we are given relief in the time of distress. When it just feels like the weight of the world and the wrath of God is upon us for sin, and God comes and He relieves that distress from us and He gives us a new life. And we've seen that all throughout our journey in the book of Romans, haven't we? Join with me as we journey back to chapter 1. We see Paul begin in verse 16. The reason that he's writing what he's wanting to ground them in. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It's the power of God for salvation. To who? To everyone who believes. To the religious Jew, but also to the Greek who, who knew nothing of God. Why? Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul wants us to understand that the only way we're right with God is by faith in Jesus Christ, and that's massively important, church, because if you just keep reading chapter 1, you will realize that we live in a world, and before Christ, we are part of a world. That is solely focused on our own passions, our own desires, our own wants, and eventually, if we continue that pattern, God says, "Fine," and He gives us up to our passions, our desires, so much so that if you go to chapter three, you will read in verse ten. Paul simply say that none is righteous. Not one. I have a semicolon after the word one. There's no asterisk, there's no small letter that points me to the bottom of the Bible and has my name as the exception. Has your name as the exception. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God all have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. We're in great danger, church. Because Matthew 5.48 tells us that we have to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And Paul just said, none of us are perfect. And in case you thought that your works were would make you perfect, he gets to chapter four, and he brings out the example of Abraham, and he says that Abraham is made right or justified with God before anyone. Now maybe you grew up in a church background, and you say, oh, my, my grandfather was in the church, so I'm good. My grandfather was a pastor, so I'm good. That's what these religious Jews would have been like. Well, well, the promise was given to us, so just by nature being born, I'm okay. I'll well, so no, Abraham was never made okay by his work, made okay by his ethnicity, made okay by anything he offers. He was only made okay by faith. That's massively important, because as we get to chapter five, we see that All of us fall under the headship of Adam. And if that's not scary to you, let me unpack that. It means that the man who failed, the man who disobeyed God and his commandments, did a great favor to us. He passed on his sinfulness to us. Thank you, Adam, right? My guess is I would have done probably this. So no man can make us right with God except for the God-man Jesus Christ. That we need to go from being under Adam to being under Christ, and that transition only takes place. Because of what Paul shows us in chapter 5, verse 8, that God, God initiated, that God showed his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, not when you got 100% on whatever test you're living for, not when you stopped dealing with those sins from last week. But when we were still sinners, Christ died for us, his death counted in our place. So much so that in verse in chapter 6, we see that we are now able to fight our sin, that we don't have to give in to our sin anymore, we have the power to overcome. Have you ever had that sin in your life that just time and time and time and time again, you you wake up, I'm not going to do it, and by the end of the day, you did it. And Paul says, by faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't have to be the story. We have power to overcome. We have power to fight and actually put sin to death. And it culminates in chapter eight, verse one, where Paul is able to declare the most glorious truth for all of us, that if we believe in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. There is no punishment, no judgment, whatsoever. So imagine this for a moment. Imagine you get picked up from shoppers. They bring you into the courtroom, and man, this is terrible. I'm going to get it. Because you know, you have six other priors for shoplifting. And this makes number seven. you got those butterflies in your stomach. You just have dread. Man, you know the judge is just going to lay it all on you. And you're getting locked up. So they call you up. The judge looks at me and says, "Why are you here?" Well, I, I got I got arrested for shoplifting. Judge grabs his paper and says, "There's nothing on here. I, I don't. It has your name, but it's just plain. There's nothing there." I, I don't know, Judge. I, I got, got arrested for chocolate. And The officer says, "Yeah, yeah, I, I arrested him. Up there. Well, let me go to my computer. He goes over to his computer, he's looking. It says here that you've never been arrested before. It says here that like, you've never had any run ins with the law before. But you know what? It also says that that guy has six times where he shoplifted. it says that that guy was the one that was arrested. It says that that guy is the one that should be on trial, but you're scot-free. Your rap sheet is clean. You can go. How did you feel that moment, church? I just got my life back. And that's exactly what happens when we trust in Jesus Christ. The judge looks at all the things that we've done and he says, it's not there. But that guy, Jesus, it's on his record. He goes to jail for you. And all of your condemnation is wiped How glorious is that, church? It's gone. And it leads all into showing in chapters nine through 11 that this grace is offered to all. That whether you have a religious background or whether you've never stepped foot a day in your life into a church, until this moment, both parties can come to Jesus Christ and can receive this enormous mercy and this grace. So much so that Paul ends chapter 11 just by worshiping God. He says in verse thirty-three, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Paul's just flabbergasted, knowing his life, that God would even offer him salvation and forgiveness. So the church, we have this. not because of ourselves but because of Jesus so if you're in here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ this is offered to you that we don't have to keep basing our life upon trying to please God because we can't it's done it's finished We can come to Christ simply by trusting in Jesus and reminding ourselves of Jesus and uh, asking him to forgive us, asking him to change us. Church, that's why we gather each week. You realize that, right? We gather because we have a thing called gospel in That by tomorrow morning, all of the gospel or most of the gospel will be put on the back burner as you get ready for work and try to live life. So we gather to remind one another that Jesus is a greater treasure. We gather to to sit under God's word because there are 110 other waking hours in your week that is leading you away from God, that is trying to entice you into something other than Jesus Christ. And think about this. We have an hour and a half here trying to reorient our lives back to Jesus. I don't know if you watch any sort of sports, but my guess, if that were the odds, you would turn off the TV because you know that you would lose. Imagine how much more do you lose if you don't have this time together. That's why we need to be a people who gather to remind each other of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he gives. To be able to fight back against the world that is leading us and enticing us to to give ourselves to the pleasures and comforts of this world. And we need to remind one another in community that, that Jesus is a greater treasure. have said this before, but that's the reason why you go to football games in a stadium, or, or why you want to watch the game with your buddy, or, or why you go to concerts where it's not just you, right? Kind of boring. Going to a concert. Just you and the band. But there's something when you are with others together, rejoicing in Jesus, that you're reminded of how good He actually is. Church, we've got to be people who are gathering not just on a Sunday, but throughout the week, reminding each other of how good God truly is. Because when we understand this mercy, and when it begins to sink deep into us, it begins to transform us in two ways. Paul's going to show us that. The first way he shows us is God's physical sanctification. It changes us bodily. This term sanctification is just this idea that God comes in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ, he begins to turn us from sin and make us look more like Jesus Christ. And we see how this changes us physically. Look with me at verse or, uh, verse 1. He says, to present your bodies. You know, I think in the church we have a misunderstanding of our bodies. We read in Genesis 1 that God created us with bodies, and we're creating the image of God, so there's a, a reality that even with our bodies we're supposed to represent God. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that on the final resurrection day, that our bodies will be resurrected and our spirits will be reunited and our bodies will be transformed. You watch Tom and Jerry growing up? That's not what heaven's going to be like. Some celestial spirit riding a cloud, playing a harp. We're given bodies, renewed bodies, to worship God, because with our bodies, we actually worship. We saw that in Revelation, didn't we? Oftentimes, idolatry was tied to sexual immorality. That our way of worship is often tied to our bodies. Have you ever woke up in the morning and you just feel incredibly tired, wore out, you're just achy, you feel lethargic, and you have absolutely no motivation to do anything? Ever have, ever have one of those things? You get to lunch and you're just like, I don't want to make anything. Now, you might have absolutely no money, but what are you going to do in that moment? Go of lunch. Or have you ever been on a diet? I'm gonna eat better. This is me like every two days. I'm gonna eat better. And you have a bad day. And that ice cream is your ticket. Freedom. Stressful. To joy. You see, ice cream's not terrible, and eating out's not terrible, but it is when it becomes a form of therapy for our lives. You see, so often uh, what we do is not just a fight in our mind, it's actually a fight with our bodies, that we feel this war that's waging inside of us, and so we have to actively not just think differently, but actually physically use our bodies differently to fight. And this is active. We can't just sit back passively. Because notice again what he says in verse 1, he calls us to present our bodies for what? A living sacrifice. We read Leviticus 1 earlier. One of many chapters in the Old Testament talking about sacrifices and how they would grab animals and they would kill the animal and offer the animal as a sacrifice, as a, as a way of devoting their life to God and as a way to appease the wrath of God. And now Paul is saying that we are to take our own lives and offer them as a living sacrifice. What does that mean? doesn't mean that we harm our bodies, because it's a living sacrifice. It's a sacrifice where we were once spiritually dead, but now we are alive. But yet, it's a sacrifice, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 16, that if we're to follow him, we need to deny ourselves, we need to take up our cross, and then we can follow him. It's a sacrifice where we see our lives no longer for what we can get, but rather for what God desires out of God. What does that mean? It's where our focus is on Christ, where each day we wake up and instead of thinking about our desires and our gratification, rather we wake up and say, Lord, what do you have for me today. We begin asking the Lord and spending time in prayer, asking him that we can use our bodies for his joy. Then we can begin to use our lives for his purposes rather than for ours. A few weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast and I'm sure there's a ton of race fans in here like myself. But the podcast was uh, an interview with Ty Gibbs. And I'm sure no one knows who that is, so I'll explain. Ty Gibbs, all right. Ty Gibbs is a 19-year-old grandson of Joe Gibbs, who coached the Washington football team decades ago. And he is now driving in the second series and now the top series of NASCAR. And they were interviewing him, like 19 years old. And you're in the top series, like, Don't you get anxious? Don't you get worried? Like, what do you do? And with a guy who has no faith in Jesus Christ, he says, I don't get anxious. You're 19. Like, how does that happen? Like, you are, you are racy guys twice as old as you. Like, how does this happen? He says, because I know where I'm going. I know who I serve. I love Jesus Christ, so anytime time I get anxious, I just pray and bring it to him. And like that, that just doesn't make sense, and he says, of course it does. I've been given the greatest gift of all of eternity, and so if tomorrow I get to wake up and drive a race car, praise be the name of the Lord. Or if tomorrow morning I wake up and I have to be a janitor, praise be the name of the Lord. None of that matters. Because Jesus and the gift of salvation is far greater than any of that, Church, that's crazy. It's crazy, but he realized the reality that his life was not for himself and what he could get, but his life was for Jesus. And he was giving all of his life for Jesus. And so church, that means that we, we need to begin to think how can we honor the Lord with our life? We need to wake up, thinking: How do we encourage others here with our life? That we begin to lay down our desires, and we begin to care about those around us, and encourage them in the ways of Jesus Christ. We're so called to God. We're called to this community. It encourages them. He's called us to have this living sacrifice. This means that we've got to be a people who take care of our bodies. It means we've got to be a people who actually watch what we eat. That's hard for me. I love my bacon cheeseburgers. And yet, the uh, 18th century theologian, Jonathan Edwards, he's a pastor in Massachusetts. He, before he died, he wrote all of these resolutions, and one of the resolutions was this: He said, "I resolve to eat the right kind of food, which included vegetables, the right kind of food, so that every day I have the most amount of energy to be expended for the work of Jesus Christ." You do that you think about your lunch, your dinner, and say, is this going to help me serve Jesus, or is this going to hurt me from serving Jesus? See, that's what it means for us to be presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, When we take care of our bodies. We exercise, and we get to bed on time. We're mindful of what God has given so that it might be holy and acceptable to God. Sinclair Ferguson says, he's a pastor who says that this idea of holy means that every area of our lives is devoted to God. That means your time, that means your money, that means your energy, Ever it's your parenting, your job, everything is devoted to God. It's not just good enough for government work. Because notice what he says. It's holy and it's acceptable. To God. We want to bring our best Because he says it's our spiritual worship. Church, the way you interact and treat your physical body is a form of worship to the Lord. Do you see that? We need to be a people who are exalting Jesus. So that even with our own life, even with the time that the Lord has given us, that we leverage that to exalt him. And yet that is based out of what Paul shows us lastly. And that is God's mental sanctification. He doesn't just transform and and sanctify our bodies. He's wanting to do that with our bodies. Minds, because it's our minds that drive our bodies. The church, if we're not careful, sometimes we wear the badge of honor by neglecting our mental self. I don't read. I don't think. I don't, whatever. And we think that that's a badge of honor by not having our minds change and by not using our minds. Paul says, no, it's not. But our minds should be part of the process. We should not neglect it. Because notice verse 2. He says that we need to not be conformed. We need to be a people who are not allowing the outside influences to shape us, and we just go along with it. We need to... Be the kind of guy that doesn't just laugh at the dirty jokes so we can fit in. The kind of gal that doesn't just keep buying clothes so we can fit in. The kind of person who goes to the bar because we don't want to be made fun of. That's conformity to the world, and and he's saying, don't be conformed to the world. And and why is that a bad idea? We, We saw that in Romans 1. Because when we conform to the world, eventually Jesus just gives us over to our passions and our desires and says, if you want that, go for it. What is without me? So let's, let's not get people who are conformed to the world. That means we've got to get people who protect our minds. How do we do that? We've got to be a people who are thoughtful about what we are allowing in to our minds that we're thoughtful about the tv shows that we watch we're thoughtful about the movies that we watch we're thoughtful about the songs we listen to about the youtube videos about the entertainment that we consume that we're thoughtful about that because that sinks into us And it begins to lead us away from Jesus, and it slowly kills our affection for Christ. Church, the world is not helping you to love Jesus. They don't care about you loving Jesus. They actually don't care about you. They care about you spending money so that their pockets are locked. So we've got to be a people who are not driven by the world, and the world's ways are driven by Jesus Christ, and so we're we're listening to the the things that the world is saying, and we're gauging that against the Bible. Let me tell you a couple of the ways the world is trying to entice you away from Christ. This idea of you only live once. They want your minds focused here. When Christ says that there's an eternity. Or this idea that you're unique, right? That sounds good. But what I've found is that when I'm unique and when I struggle, you can't understand my struggle. And now I'm alone. Or you deserve to treat yourself. The reality is that we deserve all. So, church, we've got to be a people who are listening to the things of the world, engaging in his scripture. And that's what Paul shows us. We should not be conformed, but rather we should be transformed. And how are we transformed? We're transformed by the renewing of our mind. We've got to be a people who are constantly allowing our minds to be shaped and cultivated towards the Lord. And we do that by, by starting with God's Word. You, you read God's Word. In it is life. The psalmist says, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. He says, I meditate on your law day and night. You do that. You see that it is a glorious truth to sink into your minds, into your hearts, so that it begins to shape you and transform you. Because when your minds are renewed, notice what happens. You can test and discern what the will of God is. Church, the goal is that we would know the will of God. The the goal is that we would actually be able to know what God wants. And we realize that, that the Bible doesn't have every answer for every question. It doesn't tell me the house to buy. It doesn't tell me the restaurant to go to. It doesn't tell me the job to take. But it gives me enough principles and enough guidelines for life, that by looking and knowing the Bible and allowing it to renew my mind, I can then test all of these decisions against God's Word. And as I test those decisions, I can discern what God desires. I can know His will. And notice how Paul describes His will it's His good, it's His acceptable, and it's His perfect will. Will Church, the only way that we can actually live for Jesus Christ is if we go back and daily remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And allow that to transform our bodies. And allow that to transform our minds. So that as we live in the future, as we live this afternoon, we're not living for the world, but living for God. It's not a matter of a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's really a matter of what's your treasure. What are you focused on? What are you looking at? Because when Christ is your treasure, everything else in the world just fades away. And you begin to discern and you begin to be transformed, and you begin to be renewed, and you're able to offer your life as a sacrifice of Christ. Two months ago, one single act of kindness transformed my entire night. I sure hope we know that we've been given a greater act of kindness than $40 on cheap rides and funnel cake. We've been given an eternal life through Jesus Christ. Do you treasure that? Are you focused on that to the point that your body and your mind are transformed? Because it's then that we can live in worship. That's right. Father, we thank you again for the truth of your word. We thank you for how you have spoken to us this morning and how you continuously remind us that we need to have lives that are transformed, changed. And so, Father, I pray now that you would work in us. Lord, we confess how often we go back to our old ways of living, Uh, we fail to fight mentally, we fail to fight physically, we buy into the false hopes of this world, and we confess that. And we ask that you change us, we ask that you make us new, we ask that you would help us to live for you. And that we would be in awe over the great treasure of Jesus Christ that you've given to us. We pray. Your son's precious name. Amen.